following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word. We live in a time of mass shootings and moving goalposts. Some evil is right in front of us and we clearly identify it. And some evil we deny. We want to change the rules and say, well, that's not really evil. Because we are sinfully selective and we need our minds renewed by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. If you've ever wondered what real faith looks like, look no further than Romans chapter 12. It paints this beautiful picture of real Christianity in action. What it means to live the gospel, what it means to be unconformed to the world, what it means to to love Jesus and have that make a difference in your life. So go ahead, if you're able, please stand. I'm going to read God's word, and I I really want us to let the, the scriptures wash over us today and sink into our pores here. I'm going to read Romans 12, 9 through 21. We'll be looking at this passage for the next several weeks. This is the word of God. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Lord, we thank you for your word, and thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. I pray, Lord, that we would see wonderful things from your word as you open our eyes to see them. I pray, Lord, you'd have your way in our hearts and in our fellowship today, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Last five chapters of Romans are intensely practical. Uh, It really gets down into the nitty-gritty details of what it means to follow Jesus. What does it mean to live the Christian life? And it shows us a better way than sometimes we gravitate towards. This is supernatural living inspired by the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit, by the grace of God, according to the the Word of God, to do the will of God. These these chapters give evidence of real Christianity. What does it mean to not be conformed to the world? 
to live the gospel, to live that humanly impossible transformation that God brings about. We live 24-7 in these jars of clay and we take the hits in these temporary tents, don't we? And we need to know what does it look like to live this Christian life. This is where Romans gets intensely personal. When you get to verse 9 here, it just I remember as a new believer, I would read verses 9 to 21 over and over again because I desperately wanted the new life I had in Christ to, to seep out of my entire being. I wanted the heart change to be evidenced so that people would actually say, wow, that, that guy's been changed by Jesus. And it, it took a while, but it, by God's grace, I began to get traction and I began to see progress. Because you know if you're saved or not. You know if you are saved or not. James 2.14 says, with Faith without works is dead. No fruit, no root. Falsehood does not stand the test of time. You can only hide a corpse for so long until the, uh, the putrid, foul stench appears. When you realize the misery of your sin, God opens your eyes to your sinfulness. You realize the deliverance that God gives in Christ as he graciously draws you to himself and calls you by the gospel to believe and to be saved. Your heart responds in grateful love. You're like the psalmist in Psalm 116. What can I give the Lord for all his blessings to me? Not to pay him back for saving you, but because you are awestruck, you are blown away that God has put you into his family. You who were dead in sin, he made you alive in Christ. And so you're humbled by that and you want to give your entire being to serve God's purposes, to learn and know and do the will of God. And we have seen so much already in Romans chapter 12. It started with this yielded worship, right? That all who trust Christ's sacrifice for sin yield everything in their life to him. We saw this sovereign transformation that God brings about, that we are we can be unconformed to the world and be transformed by the word of God. We saw what it means to live in harmony, working in harmony with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. We saw what it means to serve selflessly with the gift that God has given us. And now as we start to tackle these final verses in this chapter, what we see in verse 9 is sincere love genuine love and over the next few weeks we're going to finish up this chapter next week we're going to look at verses 10 through 13 zealous family love loving the body of christ that god put you into and then verses 14 to 21 the week after that gracious love where there is empathy and harmony and peace and even in the midst of persecution where you bless and don't retaliate gracious love and we know it's all based on the mercies of God seen in chapters 1 through 11. There's a beautiful picture of a church that is in harmony and zealous to do the will of God. Experiencing both the pleasure and the pain of following Christ. Because some of the things we see in this passage are not easy to do. Starting with verse 9. Today we see the first evidence of true Christianity. Sincere love. Now the problem is we don't always sincerely love, do we? Sometimes we are hypocritical. Sometimes 
We hate good and cling to evil. And so when you get into verses 9 through 21, uh, you're really in for a convicting and life-changing treat. It's a crash course in real Christianity where Christians are actually commanded by imperatives, by exhortations to display sincere love for God and others that shows up in your daily choices. It's actually observable. It's actually noticeable. Verse 9 begins what looks like a random list of commands, exhortations, but it is all about real faith that is characterized by real love, sincere love. Now, it's written in in a format that would have been very popular and common in the first century, just quick bursts, like staccato, almost Proverbs-like, and there's like 25 distinct but closely related exhortations in verses 9 through 21. In verse 9, you see one of several triplets, three things paired together. You see it in verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 16 as well. And what we see today in this one verse, this this trio of of sincere love, you see that real Christians sincerely love. And that is evidenced by hating evil and clinging clinging to good. So real Christians sincerely love, and that is evidenced by hating evil and clinging to good. And we're going to look at those three things. Sincere love, hating evil, clinging to good. First, sincerely loving God and others. In verse 9, the New American Standard starts like this. Let love be without hypocrisy. That's really the Greek word. It's, the Greek word is for without hypocrisy. Now, I want to remind you, this is addressed to every member of the community of faith. This is addressed to every member in an emphatic way. Verse 3 began, I say to everyone among you. I know how easy it is to hear a sermon and say, man, I really wish that one person could hear this. No, you're here. You need to listen up. I say to everyone among you, let love be genuine. Let it be sincere. Let it be without hypocrisy. Jonathan Edwards, in his exposition of 1 Corinthians 13, it was put into a book. It's called Charity and Its Fruits. And he said, love is the most insisted upon virtue in the New Testament. Love. And this is not light. This is not fluffy. This is not syrupy. This is real love. Just hearing 1 Corinthians 13 at 100 weddings does not absolve you of the need to love truly and genuinely. This word for love is a very well known word in the Bible. It's agape, it is love evidenced by action. So you're, you're doing something, and, and it's obvious. Love, by the way, is always an action word in Hebrew and Greek. Always an action word. We think of it as a feeling, don't we? We think of it as, well, I, I'm feeling loving right now, so then I will act loving right now. But love, agape love, is love without pretense, so even if you're not feeling it, you actually show it. Unhypocritical, unfeigned, sincere. Bible uses the word hypocrite a lot. Hypocrite was, coming, was a word that came from the Greek theater about someone who would wear a mask, who would pretend to be someone else. Whenever it's used in the New Testament, hypocrite describes a deceived, unsaved, unregenerate person who is only looking to, for the reward of being seen and noticed by other people for doing something good, nothing more. 
The Bible's really clear that Jesus punishes hypocrites. But genuine Christians, and this is what verse 9 is telling us, genuine Christians love genuinely. What does it mean to love genuinely? Agape love, what what does that mean? It's known by self-sacrifice. It's known by costing you. It's known by devotion. By the way, that word was rarely seen in pagan Greek literature because it was made fun of. It was mocked. It was seen as a sign of weakness. And here God puts it at the top of the list in his economy. This is how it always goes, isn't it? What the world says is bad, God says is good. In God's economy, it's the supreme virtue. Agape is focused on meeting needs, caring for the welfare of the one loved, and it pays a high price to meet those needs. 1 John 4.16 tells us God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 Corinthians 13.13 says, Now abide faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is more important than any spiritual gift. You notice that Paul pauses his discussion, actually ends his discussion of spiritual gifts with the call for love to be genuine because we are so prone to to compete with one another regarding prominence of gifts. Paul paused his discussion of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 by injecting a chapter on love right between it. So it is fitting that following a section on spiritual gifts in Romans, Paul does the same thing. Peter does a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 4, but he, he begins the discussion of spiritual gifts with a call for Christians to love one another. Primary fruit of the Spirit is love. Jesus said, by your love, everyone will know that you are my disciples. Genuine love prohibits falsehood and deception. In Psalm 28, it says that there are those who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Now, this is really practical. When was the last time you had a conversation with one of your neighbors and you're pretending to like them, but you really hate them inside? Proverbs 26, verse 24 says, Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips, harvards deceit in his Just hiding deceit. This is like Judas betraying Jesus. Matthew 26, in the garden, he's saying, wow, greetings, Rabbi. He comes up and kisses Jesus. Jesus, knowing his deception, says, do what you came to do. Like, make my day. Make my day because, by the way, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world is going to use this evil for the greatest good that mankind has ever seen at the cross. Jesus said, beware those who come in sheep's clothing, yet inwardly are ravenous wolves. They act like they like you, but they want to devour you. They want to hurt you. False love is a travesty. I think love is probably the most misused and misunderstood word in our vocabulary. It's like Inigo Montoya and the Princess Bride. Questioning Vizzini, who described everything as inconceivable. He says, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. And we're throwing love around. We can't even finish a conversation sometimes without telling the person we love them. We have to be so reassured, don't we? 
Some of us didn't grow up hearing love all the time, and now we just throw it out there to where it doesn't mean what we think it means. I mean, how often do we use the word love and miss the meaning? How often do you pretend to love? Here's how the conversation goes. I love them, but... Followed by a put-down, a slam, a criticism, a critique. How many of your conversations are about people's actions and people's issues and their sins? In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, Paul says, If I do not love, I am like a noisy gong. I am like a clanging symbol. In those days, that would have been the clanging symbol calling people to worship false gods in pagan temples. He says it's useless, it's worthless, it's actually evil. It's offensive, it's annoying, a a gong, a, a symbol. It's like a barking dog. It's like people who do things that are not correct in public, like people who clip their nails in public. People who floss their teeth in public. People who do not hold their mouth when they sneeze in public. Obnoxious. But falsified love is the worst kind of hatred. Where you pretend to love, but you really hate. 1 John 3, 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. God gives you a supernatural ability to love people that you actually didn't choose to hang out with, but they got put into your family, the family of God, just like you did. You know, you come in the door and they're like, we didn't choose them. No, God chooses us and puts us into the family of God. He who does not love abides in death, 1 John 3, 14 says. If there's no evidence of agape, there is no evidence of salvation. This past week, a prominent Christian leader, author, Joshua Harris, chose to announce on social media that he and his wife of 20 years are divorcing and that he no longer considers himself a Christian. So you have to ask the question. He made it public. Is he a defector from the faith or is he a Christian who is really deceived? Is he real or fake? He is either a Christian or not. He will either repent of his folly or keep walking, right? And by the way, he he is being congratulated by a world that despises Jesus while those who stand for Christ are mocked. We should never stop being uh, being grieved by those who are deceived, uh, those who once professed faith in Christ, those who once preached the gospel, and then they reject Christ. We should never stop being grieved over that. But what it should cause us to do is not pile on and judge his heart, but re-examine our own hearts. The biblical call is to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Are you really a genuine believer? And it's always a good thing to ask. And by the way, when you think about people that have done this, and there's no need for fear, there's no need to let that shake your faith, Salvation does not rest on our declarations. It rests on God's sovereign decrees. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you 
this work of salvation, this justification, you're on the road of sanctification, you'll be glorified someday. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You need that assurance if you're a believer. A true believer may deny Jesus like Peter did. A a false professor will betray him like Judas did. True believers persevere, and if they stray, they repent due to God's kindness. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Because Jesus holds us fast. He perseveres us. Fakers keep walking away in the other direction. And God knows those who are his. God knows those who are genuine. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are his. Therefore, let everyone who names the name of the Lord, who professes to be a Christian, abstain from wickedness. You gotta make sure where you stand. I met someone recently at, at the rental car place that picks you up, and they're driving me back to the office, and while, along the drive, they told me basically their whole life story. So I was able to share my story a bit and and to preach the gospel to them a bit. And a couple days later when I returned the car, this person says to me, well, I took good care of the pastor, so God should give me some points for this. I told him, I said, look, I I can't help you with that. But you need to believe in Jesus Christ. And I was shocked by his response. It was honest, but I was shocked by it. He says, well, that eliminates me. He knew he wasn't a believer. I appreciate the honesty. I told him, if your heart is still beating, how many times have you heard me say this? If if your heart is still beating, there is still hope for you, and you can turn to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Bad news is sin is bad. It will send you to hell. Good news is, Jesus is good. He can save your soul. I mean, one day soon, every one of us is going to stand before the holy, righteous, perfect God who has revealed himself in the Bible. And if you've rejected him and his atoning work through Christ on the cross, If you have refused to repent of your sins, as the Bible says, and you have refused to accept his free gift of eternal life, then that day will be a horrifying day for you. It will be a day of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It won't matter if you found yourself, if you lived your dreams, if you did what made you happy, you could have been the wokest of the woke. And the only thing that's going to matter on that day is, were you right with God through Jesus Christ? Through believing the finished work of Christ, believing the gospel. And if that's not you today, if you say, you know what? No, I am not right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Then you need to listen right now. And you need to repent of your sins. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved or beware. I plead with you. I appeal to you. 2 Corinthians 5 says God makes his appeal through us. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. No one is stronger than God. First thing in this passage is sincere love. What does it look like? It looks like standing up 
for Christ. It looks like staying with Christ. It looks like being honest about your issues. It means working through them. It means dealing with tough relationships. It means confessing your sin and a whole lot of other things. God commands us to love sincerely, which moves us to the next point. It is evidenced, that sincere love is evidenced when you intensely hate evil. It says abhor what is evil. You can't get around the word. It literally means to hate. It literally means to separate yourself from something. It means to get away from something. Get away from what is evil. Literally, stay away, keep out, don't mess with this. And by the way, this is not merely hating. This is hating exceedingly. This is enmity, hatred, at war against evil. This is where you are alien to it. Psalm 34, verse 14 says, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Psalm 36, 4 says, He who plots trouble on his bed sets himself in a way that is not good, does not reject evil. Psalm 97, verse 10, a command. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Psalm 101, verses 3 and 4, I will not set before my eyes anything worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall not depart, shall depart from me. A perverse heart shall, shall depart from me. I will know no evil. It's resolve of heart. I mean, faithful believers can, can no more be friendly with evil than you would take a black widow home for a pet or a... Or a a rattlesnake home for a pet. Psalm 119, verse 104. Through your precepts, O Lord, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. And we hate evil because God hates it. And we don't decide what is good and evil. Again, the goalposts are always moving in our culture. What is good and what is evil? God decides what is good and evil. Proverbs 6 says, Six things the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, false witnesses who utter lies, one who spreads strife among brothers. Amos 5.15 just caps it off. Hate evil and love good. Hate evil. There are so many examples that we could pick out. Let me just pick out one. The Bachelorette franchise. Here are people that are parading themselves in front of the American public and saying, I can do whatever I want, and by the way, Jesus still loves me. You cannot tell me he doesn't love me. Mocking God by crashing pridefully through barriers that he has set up Proclaiming that Jesus still loves you reveals a blasphemous heart when you are doing blasphemous things. Uh, it's a complete misunderstanding of Jesus. They are not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. Hating evil actually means you avoid it. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? If you hate spinach, you don't eat it. 
you know, you just put it in your napkin and you stuff it under the table. Those who hate spiders don't climb through webs on purpose. Those who hate gossip don't air it out behind people's backs. And the question you have to ask yourself is this. Do I hate evil or do I hate those who do evil? And if we're honest, most of us have slipped into the judge's seat and we don't hate evil, we just hate the people who perpetrate it. True Christians have a strong aversion to evil, their own first. Every believer struggles with sin. What did Paul say in Romans chapter seven? The good that, that, that I'm, the, the things that I'm doing, the good that I wanna do, I'm not doing, the evil that I'm doing, I don't understand, the very good I wish to do, I don't do, I practice the very evil that I do not wish. You know what that means if you're a Christian? That when you choose to sin, you disagree with yourself. That you disapprove of your actions. And you repent. Confess your sins. You don't keep pushing through all the barriers and saying, Jesus still loves me, I can do whatever I want. You know what the best security against evil is? Being shocked by it. But constant contact with evil breaks down the barriers. It builds calluses on your heart. It eliminates the shock. And so you get infected when you, when you expose yourselves to a continual you know, germs of godlessness. Look, we are not to condemn others for their sins. We are not to condone others' sins. We are not to celebrate sin. We are not to condemn ourselves for our sins. We are not to condone our own sins. We are not to celebrate our own sin. We're to repent of our own sin. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Earlier in the chapter, it says the blood of Jesus Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. God in Christ uncondemns you. He changes you. He causes your heart to be willing and empowers you to do his will. In Psalm 1, it starts like this. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So you cannot flirt with sin and, and escape falling for it. The object of your delight will devour you. Best to be devouring the word of God and let it devour you. To delight, as Psalm 1 verse 2 says, delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. If you ever wonder, am I supposed to read the Bible every day? Well, it says to meditate on the word of God day and night, all of scripture. Think about the implications upon your life. Delight in it. Not just obey it. Delight means to love what God commands. Do you love what God commands? Or is your taste for the word of God somehow lacking? The word implanted engages avoidance of evil. This is like the crash avoidance system on a car. The word of God in, implanted in your heart engages avoidance of evil so that views that are contrary to the word of God, 
are, become just mirages that can never help you in the day of trouble. Evil cannot help you in the day of trouble. The word of God gives you strength like a, like a tree, Psalm 1 says, like a tree planted by a source of water that never runs dry. Don't let yourself be seduced by the world. Don't naively go with the crowd. And also, don't become judgmental and hard-hearted as a cynic. Meditate on the word of God to the point of loving it. And by the way, and this needs to be clarified because we get it wrong so often, to live a life marked by a hatred of evil does not mean we always speak against evil. It means we choose not to engage in evil. We get this wrong so often. We think that if we speak against something, we've taken this strong stand, like you post something up on social media and you, you took a stand against something and you walk away self-righteous with a hard heart towards other people. That's not genuine love. That's harmful. Hating evil is not flaunting your supposed superiority or your supposed purity. It is yielding yourself to what pleases God regardless of the consequence that comes your way for doing so. Hating evil is not you and I flaunting our supposed authority or our supposed purity. It is yielding ourselves to what pleases God and taking whatever consequences come our way. It's this internal aversion to evil that keeps us from engaging in it, where we stay away and say, I'm not going to allow that to come into my life. And it could be for you. I don't know how, you, how the Holy Spirit's going to lead every believer here to, to hate evil and how that's going to play out in your life, but it could be not watching a certain program or movie because it is ungodly and it's going to mess you up. It could be not going with the crowd and, and not choosing to just go with the flow but doing what you know pleases God and actually speaking up, actually speaking up again about something. Not justifying evil, but pushing it away. God commands us to love sincerely, and it is evidenced by hatred of evil. Now, the last point's obvious. If you're hating evil, you've got to love good, right? If you hate evil, you're going to love good. So the, the third point is, is very obvious. Cling to what is good. Tenaciously cling to what is good. Cling literally means to be glued to, to be united with. It's used of any bond, spiritual, emotional, physical. It means to stick like glue so that you're so closely aligned with. So remember, hating evil is like separating yourself from it. Well, clinging to good is where you're joined to what is good. This is like a scared child running up to their parent and just grabbing their leg and holding on for dear life. This is like clinging to a rock when you're on a mountain that's really windy and you're just holding on for dear life. You cling to what is good, what is inherently good, praiseworthy, qualitative, qualitatively good, excellent quality, grade A. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 says, See that no one repays one another evil for evil. Always seek what is good for one another and for all. You know how many problems in relationships would be eliminated if we did that? If we always sought after that which is good for one another and for all? 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, examine everything carefully. 
Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Which way do you lean? What do you crave? What sounds good to you? I think we've probably all done the accidental super glue on the fingertips thing, right? And when you separate that, it does take skin with it. But you're supposed to glue yourself to good and not let go. Good clings to you. Now, evil clings to you as well. So we have to be so intent on clinging to good that that evil always feels like a slippery rock. And don't go past the warning signs. In Yosemite, just this week, like three, or this year, three people have either died or been horribly injured because they went past the warning signs and went out into slippery rocks. Revisit Romans 12, 1. Reasonable worship, what makes sense. Those who trust Christ's sacrifice for sin give themselves fully to him. Your love for Christ would increase and multiply and overflow because you're glued to intrinsic good. Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell, literally cling to those things. You cling to what is good by not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You separate yourself from evil. You saturate yourself with the word of God. And good starts coming into focus like you're coming out of the, out of the fog. Good doesn't get, uh, excuse me, evil doesn't get eliminated. It fades. It doesn't get completely out of existence for you, but it, it gets away from your primary attention. God commands Christians to love him and others sincerely by hating evil and clinging to good. But here's what we think. We think, well, if I just do the right thing and I cling to good, God's going to own me. Tell that to Holocaust Jews. Tell that to Job. In a culture that defines itself by what it does, we have to continually be reminded that the gospel defines us in Christ. You are not your good behavior. You are not your bad behavior. You are affected by both, but your eternity is not secured or sustained by either. You have to fight self-deception here. Uh, Your sanctification will slip some gears if, if you get this wrong and stay in an unhealthy pattern. The biggest question we can ask ourselves is this. How can we cling to good when we're not always good? 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Our union with Christ enables our clinging to good. Otherwise, it wouldn't stick. It's like gluing wood to plastic. Glued to God. Holding on to what will never let you go. It's like being you know, locked in with your uh, climbing belt to go up a, a rock climbing and and it's all locked in on you but you're holding on dearly to the rope but the rope is holding you securely clinging to good what what does it look like it means holding to the word of god letting it shape your worldview it means letting go of false ideas about god and being willing to be taught solid truth it means taking the high road with God and others. It's not where you go into things saying, how come God hasn't let me do this? It's, what does God say in his word and how can I follow it more closely? 
It's where you, you think things through in your life and, and, and you do get into the nitty-gritty details of life and how you might glorify God. Real Christians sincerely love, they hate evil, they cling to good. And those are our three imperatives to start. Those are our three imperatives to start. Three evidences that you're really saved. Love must be real. You must hate evil. You must cling to what is good. Remember this. Love originates from God. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the atoning sacrifice, the mercy seat sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice in our place. He died in our place. And this is how you live the Christian life, trusting Jesus Christ. God knows if your love is real or not. God knows if you hate evil or not. God knows if you're glued to good or not. And what would I want you to do today? What would I want you to take away from this today? Could it be, well, just start loving each other? I mean, that would be great, but it goes so far beyond that. Uh, maybe you're not living a life of genuine love. Maybe you are a genuine Christian, but it's not showing. You could try really hard today to love people. I would just say, just repent. What I want you to do today is run to Jesus. Cling to Christ. He understands your trials and temptations. He understands your failings. Go to the wonderful counselor. Look to him who is perfectly good and yield your life to him for his purposes. By the way, cling is the same word in the Bible for cleaving to your spouse, to be wedded to, literally to stick like glue to the one that you have been joined to in marriage. To, to cling then to what is good is to be married to it. Every Christian is part of the bride of Christ. Cling to Christ, bride of Christ. Cling to him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that if we cling to you, you're clinging far, far stronger to us. Your, your embrace of us, your clasp on us never lets go. Thank you, Lord, that we can offer our whole self to you and yield our heart to you. I pray, Lord, that you would cause us to repent of devious or mischievous or even treacherous ways that we may have fallen into. Maybe our foot has been caught in. And Lord, may we soak in Christ. May we marinate in the word. May, may we be drenched in the flood of your most excellent love because you are Lord over all. You inspire us to love sincerely and hate evil and cling to you, the one who is good as you hold us fast. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.